This morning we're going to be in Job chapter 2. If you'll open your Bible to Job chapter 2, we're going to begin in verse 11. Job chapter 2 and verse 11. Uh, Let me encourage the young people in the room. Uh, We have these out on the round table in the middle. Uh, These are some sermon notes for the the kids and young people to help them follow along uh, with the sermon. My hope is for them to learn to be uh, note takers and help them learn to listen to sermons. Uh, So this is out there. I like if they collect five of these and turn them into me, I like to give them a present. I like to reward them for their efforts. Praise God. I also remind you as you're turning to Job, which is a, we're going to look at probably the darkest chapter of the Bible, one of them at least, this morning. This Friday we have a fellowship time planned. Let me encourage you all to try to come. We're going to come and gather together. Should be information about that on the back of your bulletin. We're going to eat together. We're going to hear the word of God together and have a good time together. I encourage you to come to that. Now we turn our attention to Job chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 11. Job chapter 2 and verse 11. We've left Job, who's experienced a, a horrific trial. We're introduced to Job as a, a righteous man who fears God. He's a godly man. And God allowed and brought about calamity in his life. It was through the instrument of Satan, and Satan's goal and desire was for Job to curse God. And we we found Job so physically distressed, he was scraping his skin with with a pot shard. And to add to his anguish, his wife tells him to curse God and die. By the way, if anyone encourages you to compromise the faith when you're in terrible distress, don't do it. Job recognizes God is at work and does not sin against God and compromise his faith in that case. And then we come to chapter 2 and verse 11. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, And they made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised up their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. There's a time in the life of Moses, one of the great leaders of the Old Testament, where Moses is so burdened by the people of God and by their disobedience and by leading the people of God, it's such a burden, Moses asked God, kill me. There's a time in the life of Elijah, the prophet, this prophet amazingly used of God, this faithful man of God. After after he confronts the prophets of Baal on the mountain and God shows his power, And this incredible scene of seeming victory for God and for his people. You find Elijah alone and distressed. And he prays to God that he might die. And he says, Elijah says, it is enough. You find in the lives of faithful, godly men and women times of terrible distress and darkness. And that's what you have in the book of Job. The book of Job is a long 
journey of suffering. It is a slow narrative. We're still in the introduction here. But it is a frustrating narrative. And it, it demonstrates it is just simply not easy to work through grief. And I have a challenge for you. I want to challenge you, and I hope that you'll take this, I want you to read the book of Job in the way that it was intended to be read in one sitting. Sometime this week, carve out the time and sit down and read the entire book of Job. That's how the book was intended to read. And part of the literary force of the book of Job is the, is, is the effect that it has on you when you read it. The effect that the book has on you, one of the effects, is it is really frustrating to read this book. If you read chapters 3 through 29, at the end of chapter 29, you're probably going to be frustrated. That's part of the literary genius of the book. And that's kind of what anguish is like, isn't it? And distress, it is frustrating. Job's three friends hear about the evil that has befallen him. Keep in mind, Job is introduced as the greatest man in the East. He is a well-known man. He suffered horrific distress. Friends come from all over that, that area of the world. Incidentally, none of these names seem to be Hebrew names. These aren't, these aren't apparently Hebrews. These are other wise men from other areas. And notice their intentions are good in verse 11. They come to show him sympathy. They come to comfort him. In verse 12, when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. That's how horrific his physical distress is. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of going into the hospital to visit a friend or a family member and they've, they've had such a catastrophic event happen in their life, they're just almost unrecognizable. It's bizarre when that happens. That's how terrible Job's suffering is. His friends do not even recognize him in their responses. They raise up their voices and weep. They tear their clothes. They sprinkle dust on their head toward heaven. All signs of horrific grief and distress. They wept. Friends, part of being a Christian and part of being in the church is weeping with those who weep. They tear their robes, which is a sign of distress. They sprinkle dust on their heads, probably a, a symbolic reference to the fact that man is made of dust and is going to return to the dust, that death is imminent. And this is just a sad reminder of that reality. They sat with him seven days and seven nights. They don't speak a word to him. It's hard to interpret what that means, if that's good or bad. They're, they seem to just be in shock and awe because they saw that his suffering was very great. There is a time, certainly, with those who are suffering just to be silent. And then we come to chapter 3, Job's lament. So we see his friends and their concern. Now look at Job's lament in chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Keep in mind the devil's design in the afflictions upon Job, the devil's intent was for Job to curse God. If you go back and read in chapter 1 and 2, the devil wants Job to curse God. Job does not do that. Job curses the day of his birth. He comes close. He curses the day of his birth. And then notice in chapter 2, you find a transition. If you just look at the text of your Bible, it looks different. If you have a more modern translation. That's because what you have for the rest of the book of Job until the very end is poetry. You notice that in chapter 3, how, how the, the text changes? That essentially chapters 1 and 2 are narrative. They're essentially telling a story. They're giving the background. Chapter 3, you, you hear Job speak, and it's in poetry. Why poetry? Because poetry is a language of emotion. It's, it's, a, it's the language of the heart. For instance, 
Poetry helps people to express deep realities that are, that are too deep and important for normal words or sentences. For instance, most of us are familiar with love poetry. When you love someone, when you love someone, how do you explain love? It's in, it, it is insufficient just to say, well, I care deeply for this person. That's insufficient. How do you explain love? Well, you use the power and force of, of emotional language, poetry. You have that in the Song of Solomon where Solomon lays out this incredibly graphic, glorious, beautiful description of his wife, which incidentally every husband should do. This, this poem about how much he loves her and how beautiful she is. But it also works with sadness. And what we have here, lament. That something so horrible has taken place. It is just insufficient to say, I'm sad. That does not capture the, the gravity of, of the tragedy that's taken place. It calls for poetry. It calls for a, a, a language of the heart that expresses a deep reality. So that's what you have in chapter 3 and really the rest of the book of Job until the very end. You have poetry. So let's work through it and let me try to explain some of Job's lament. Verse 3. Let the day perish on which I was born. And the night that said, a man is conceived. What Job does in this section, it's quite terrible. That's what lament is. It, it's a verbal expression of the horrible realities of life. <clears throat> Job takes the most joyful moments of life and he turns them upside down. He turns them on their head. He takes the most beautiful and delightsome parts of life and casts them in darkness. One of the most joyful announcements in life is that a child has been conceived. Notice, incidentally, the Bible affirms life at conception. A man is conceived. This is, this is like one of the most joyful announcements we experience, isn't it? There's been a, a new conception. Job says, let that day perish. Verse 4, let that day be darkness. Incidentally, at the very front of the Bible... In God's creative work, let there be light. Job turns that upside down. Let there be darkness. This is a dark chapter. Let there be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Essentially, he's talking about the day of his conception. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. No happy birthday to Job. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let the night be barren. Uh, essentially, in the ancient world, the, the, the worst difficulty a person could face was barrenness. Job says, I wish that were true of my mom. This is how horrible he feels. Let no joyful cry enter it. Verse 8, let those who curse it, I'm sorry, let those curse it who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Here you're introduced to this beast, Leviathan, that we'll read about later in the book of Job, which is really described in poetic language as a, essentially a sea monster of mythological proportion. Some people speculate that maybe it's a crocodile. Essentially, it's, it's, it's essentially a... a beast that the Lord uses for his own purposes. Essentially, Job is saying, release the kraken on my life. That's the picture here. God's devouring beast, may it consume the day I was born. 
Essentially, he's just using the most graphic language possible to describe how he wishes he were dead or had never lived. Verse 9, let the stars of the dawn be dark. Let it not hope for light, but have none. That essentially the morning brings new joys. The morning brings another day. This is a gift of God. Another day has come. And, and that's signaled by the stars that are out. And then notice what it says there at the end of that verse. Nor see the eyelids of the morning. That, that first gleam of sunlight that comes up over the horizon. That signals joy. The heavens declare the glory of God. Job says let that be dark. Verse 10. Because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb. Nor hide trouble from my eyes. Job is, a, Job is in darkness. Then the why questions start. Now look at the why questions beginning in verse 11. Why did I not, why did I not die at birth? So he, he takes these moments of joy and says, why didn't I die then? Why did I not die at birth, come out from my mother's womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me? Look at that picture. The knees receiving you is the picture of the, the baby usually on the dad's lap. This is, a, this is one of the pictures of the most joyful times of life. Or the breast that I should nurse, the nourishment that comes from a mother. Job wishes that would never have taken place, verse 13. For then I would have laid down and been quiet. I would have slept. I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves or princes who had gold who filled their houses with silver. Essentially, all these other people who have been exalted like I was in life, they died why can't I die? Verse 16. Or why was I not as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? One of the, the most difficult tragedies families and particularly moms deal with are, is miscarriage. And look at what Job is saying here. Can you This is just unthinkable. Job says, I wish that would have been me. Verse 17. There the wicked cease from troubling. Now he's going to exalt death. And there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Essentially, Job's saying death would be better. Verse 20. Why is light given to him who is in misery? And life to the bitter in soul. He's describing himself there. And other sufferers of like him, who long for death but it comes not, who dig for it more than for hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave. Job is terribly depressed in our modern day terminology. Verse 23, why is, life, why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? And that's really Job's problem. This is going to be Job's dilemma through the rest of the book that, I, again, you should take and read. Here's Job's dilemma. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden? He doesn't understand this. He doesn't understand this. That's, that's one of the themes of this book that we're going to work through. Job cannot understand why God has done this. What a dilemma. Isn't it amazing God inspires a book like this with such real issues that we face in a broken world? Well, we're not the only ones. Job faced them too. Why is light not given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? 
For my sighings come instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water, for the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. Job's friends sat with him for seven days in quiet, and Job says, I'm going to open my mouth. And he opens it in lament. And then what follows is a terrible discussion full of all kinds of errors coming from a very distressed man and his friends who have no clue about what he's going through. All inspired by God. What do we learn from this? Well, first of all, you see in Job 3, and you find throughout the rest of the Bible, God's people lament. God's people lament. That's what this is. This is a lament. It's, an, it's a verbal expression of pain that you face in life. This is, part of, this is part of what it means to be a faithful Christian in a broken world. It doesn't mean everything goes well and I'm happy all the time. It means that there are real horrible things that happen in life. And we ask why. God's people lament. They languish and they lament. Jeremiah the prophet is a faithful man of God whose whole ministry is characterized by rejection and persecution and hatred. And then after the book of Jeremiah, you have the other book he wrote, Lamentations, which is a lament, where he laments the unfaithfulness of God's people, God's judgment on Jerusalem, and how the Jerusalem has been destroyed, the temple is no more. It is a lament, a lament about the tragedies of life. And keep in mind, Jesus Christ is the man of sorrows acquainted with grief. This is one of the ways Jesus is presented. He is a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. You read about some of his distresses in Psalm 22 that Michael read earlier in the service. This is one of the, to me, the amazing things about the Bible. It is so real. The Bible is honest about what we face in life, part of which are tragedies that lead us, frail people, to lament. This is why this facade of pretending like everything's okay and going well is just false and unhelpful. It's just not real. What's real is what you find in the Bible. Experiences of suffering, affliction, distress, despair. That's life. Let me, let me take a little aside from that, just a bit of application on that point. The Bible is full of laments because life is full of lament. <clears throat> this is why it is wrong as a Christian to ignore or obscure that reality of life because that's what you find in the Word of God. I mean, think about what our Savior went through. That doesn't mean you can't go through it with joy or rejoicing, and that's difficult. I'm not saying there's no place for joy, but I'm just saying there is a place for lament. And, and what has happened essentially in, in my lifetime is the reality of lament and despair has been obscured or ignored in many places and churches. I'll tell you why I think this is important in just a minute. I mean, one that we all recognize as wrong is the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel which, by the way, is one of the fastest-growing false religions in Africa and around the world. This false teaching that God wants everybody to be healthy and wealthy and prosperous. How does Job fit into that? 
And, and, and again, part of that false teaching is if you're not healthy and wealthy and prosperous, then there must be something defective about your faith. And therefore, there's some, something wrong with what you're believing. You're not believing right. Whereas we're following a Savior who was crucified because he was faithful. One of the biggest books in the Old Testament, the book of Job, is about a righteous man whom God afflicts. And he doesn't understand it. God's people lament. And, and modern approaches to the church and Christianity just try to obscure this reality. Just this idea of being caught up in the spirit of the age to entertain people. Uh, so this, a few weeks ago, and I don't typically do this, uh, but a, a few weeks ago I watched a, a video service of another Baptist church. I, I just honestly could not believe what I saw. I was just stunned. I, just totally stunned. <clears throat> and I, I won't go into the wave of emotion that, that I faced, but I just couldn't believe it. The songs with no biblical truth, the 18-minute sermon, which devoid of biblical teaching. Unbelievable. This kind of chipper Christianity with a dark concert-type church. It's just not real. Read the Bible. Read about Jesus. Read about Paul's suffering. That's so false and wrong. And, I, and again, I'm, I bring that up. Because this room is full of young people who will leave our care and go to other churches. And they need to understand part of the Christian life is living with and dealing with and enduring despair. And just because we want them to live a righteous life and we want them to be faithful to God, you be faithful to God and you very well, you will suffer. And there will be dark times in your life. Incidentally, I was thinking this morning about this. Why do we come to church? Lots of reasons. Lots of reasons we come to church. We come to worship God, obviously. We come to edify one another. This morning, think about this. One of the reasons we come to church is we come to learn about and be reminded of truth about God and ourselves and life. It's one of the reasons we come to church. There's others. We come to, to learn and be reminded of truth about God, the most important subject matter, about ourselves, what does the Bible say about me, and about life. Friends, Job 3 speaks to an, a real issue in life, as do about 50 psalms. You understand about 50 of the psalms are laments about the distresses we face in life, all of which ultimately are pointed to hope in Jesus Christ, who is our hope, who is our deliverer. But God's people lament. Secondly, God's people ask why. What do we learn from this chapter? Job is one of God's people. He asks why. Distresses cause us to ask why. There are times in our life, experiences we have, circumstances we face, and it feels like, or the experience makes us think, God is not caring about me, or God is silent. Job thinks that. If you look at Job chapter 30, Job 30, verse, I'm going to start, let me see. Job 30, I'm going to start in verse 16. Job 30 and verse 16, you, you hear about his affliction. Listen to this. God's people ask why. Here's why Job asks why. Job 30, beginning in verse 16, and now my soul is poured out within me. Days of affliction have taken hold of me. The night racks my bones. 
and the pain that gnaws me takes no rest. With great force my garment is disfigured. It binds me about like the collar of my tunic. God has cast me into the mire, and I have become like dust and ashes. I cry out for help, but you do not answer me. I stand and you only look at me. This is a distress godly people feel when they go through calamity. Look at the next verse. Here's Job's dilemma, incidentally. Verse 21. You have turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. We're going to deal with that issue in the coming weeks. Job believes, or is, and he's wrong to think this, that God has turned hostile toward him. That is not the case. But God's people ask why. Now, the key issue in asking why, what, a why question is, a, is an indication that I just simply don't understand. That's why we ask why. I don't understand this. It is not sinful or wrong for a Christian to ask why or to wonder why. Now, do you know why I believe that? It's not sinful to ask why. Well, Jesus the Lord asks, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, that's not a why seeking information. That's a why that fulfills the scripture. But it's not sinful to ask questions. In fact, the Psalms are full of this question, why? In light of distressing circumstances. But here's the key with this, and this is one of the things you learn from the book of Job. What matters is, what are you going to do with the why question after you ask it? Where do you go from there? Because you can become bitter and angry at God, and in Job's case, even indict God with wrong. That is not the way to go with the why question. A why seeking understanding, not understanding what God is doing, understanding and believing God is in control and overruling all, but not understanding why this happened or why I'm having to go through this. It's, it's normal to wonder why and not know. It's wrong to follow Job's example, which we'll see in the coming weeks, of bitterness and anger toward God. Job is going to say things like, if God were here, I would fill my mouth full of arguments. Job really thinks he can win an argument with God. He's going to find out that's wrong. Again, what the key is, is what are you going to do with the why question? And you find a much better example of what to do with the why question from the Psalms and from David. Here's an example of a sufferer, David. But look at what David does and Asaph does and the sons of Korah do with their why questions. Psalm 10, verse 1. Psalm 10, verse 1. Why, O Lord, do you stand afar off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? It's easy to look at the world, particularly calamities, and wonder that. But that's not the end of the psalm. That's just the, that's the beginning. Listen to what the psalmist does with the why question. Psalm 10, verse 12. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand and forget not your afflicted. First of all, he asks God to take action. He prays to God. Incidentally, one of the errors of Job's friends is there is an, an astonishing lack of prayer and quite an abundance of accusation in the coming chapters. Psalm 10, 16. Here's something else you do with the why question. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. You affirm truth about God. I don't understand this, but I do know this. I don't understand why this has taken place, but I do know this about God. Though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. 
God moves in mysterious ways his wonders to perform. He sets his footsteps in the seas. He rides upon the storm. The Lord is king forever. I know that to be true. That's what the psalmist does with the why question. He goes to prayer and asks God for help in his distress, and then he confesses truth. Look at Psalm 44. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bound down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. You see there what he does with it. The why questions the terrible distress. My soul is bowed down. Rise up. Come and help. He prays for God's help. Psalm 74. Oh God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Now look at what the psalmist goes on to say. Yet God is my king from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. He's confessing the greatness of God. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. Then later in Psalm 74, verse 22, Arise, O God, defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all day. That's what you do with the why questions. You pray. What do you do do when you can't do anything about your circumstances? You ask God to do something about it. What do you do when you don't understand? Well, you confess what you do know. God's people ask why. Number three, just some practical encouragement. We should give sympathy and comfort to those who are in distress. Distress is part of life. If we're going to be in the church with other people, distress is going to be part of their life. Our posture toward them is comfort and care. Job's friends have the right inclinations at the beginning. They're sympathetic and they want to comfort. By the way, the Hebrew word for comfort, you know what it means? It means support. It means to come behind someone who is falling and hold them up. When they can't stand on their own, you hold them up. You comfort them. You support them. There's a time to be silent, but there's also a time to share God's word and there's a time to pray. There's a time to weep with those who weep. That is part of the Christian life. Part of the Christian life, a big part of the Christian life is interaction with other Christians in the church where we love one another and care for one another. Part of that care is weeping with those who weep. Part of that care is praying for one another. And again, we're going to find Job's friends say a lot of things that are not true when we speak to those who are afflicted and suffering. We need to speak the true word of God. Point people to the Psalms. Again, there's about those Psalms that I read, there's about 50 of them like that. I wonder why God inspired so many Psalms like that because of the brokenness of life and this world. When you point someone to a Psalm, you know what you're pointing them to is true. You know, again, I don't, I don't have advice to give people. What am I going to say to a person going through some terrible distress that I have no idea about? But God can tell them something that is true and helpful. And you can, you can share the word of God and pray for them. Two final points. <clears throat> Thanks for hanging in there. This is hard. This is a dark, dark chapter and difficult to look at. But this is not the end of the book. And this is so important to remember, especially if you have a Job 3 experience, some horrific calamity or tragedy, and you feel like this. 
This is chapter 3 of a long book. And that's so important to remember, especially in despair, where you don't know or don't understand, there is light coming for God's people. Even Job, who makes errors in this book that we'll point out in the next week or so. There's light coming for God's people. This is not the end. That's one of the things we need to remember in the midst of that darkness and, and lament is that's not the end. It's not final. There is light coming for God's people. This is our great hope. Our hope isn't ultimately in anything that's going to happen in this life. Our hope is in the grace that will be brought to us at the return of Jesus Christ. That's, where our ho- that's what we're hoping in. We're hoping in something future. And something is going to happen for Job. And you know what's going to happen for Job? Resolution comes with God's word. God is going to speak to Job and reveal some things to Job. And again, praise God, by implication, we get to sit in on and learn about it and listen to it. But revelation comes through God's word. And after God speaks, Job is not going to have any more why questions. It's amazing the way this book works. And that's why part of the literary force of the book that you need to get by reading it in one sitting is, will these guys ever shut up and quit complaining? Is there not any resolution to this bizarre conversation? And the resolution comes at the end when God speaks and truth is revealed. And that's the same for all of us who go through difficulty and distress. See, you need your best theology when you suffer. You need need your best theology when you go through tragedy and distress. When you face your darkest moments. Look at Romans 8. Romans 8, this great chapter. It's been used by Christians for centuries for encouragement and comfort. Romans 8. It begins with a question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now that's the question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Those are all bad things. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. You know what Paul just did there in Romans 8? He quoted a lament. That is a lament psalm. He just quoted. Are any of these things that we experience for being faithful, are these going to separate us from the love of God in Christ? Even though the psalmist laments we're being killed as your faithful people all the day long, we're like sheep to be slaughtered. Paul's answer in 37, no. In all these things, in distress, tribulation, persecution, in famine, in nakedness, in danger, in sword, in death, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That's the ultimate resolution to these distress. Distresses, the resolution is Jesus Christ, who came to die for our sins, was raised powerfully from the grave, who will return and make all this brokenness right. That's where our ultimate hope is, and that's why we say, even so come, Lord Jesus, even so come. Like John prays at the end of his life in the book of Revelation, in exile, probably in his 90s, suffering in a Roman prison, John says, even so come, Lord. Let's pray. God, I just pray that you'd use this to grant help and encouragement. That, Lord, you'd give hope to those who are distressed and hurting. 
You'd help us to be sympathetic and comforting to those who go through distress. You'd help us to realize and recognize the reality of lament in life, that this world is hard and full of trials, and your people lament that we shouldn't be surprised by that. And that there is a place for asking why, that God, there's so much we don't understand. But Lord, what we do know and understand is that you sent your son to die for us sinners, that we might have eternal life. But God, there is always good news in the midst of terrible tragedies that, that afflict us. That you have done the work, Lord, that we might have life and have it abundantly. We praise you for that, God. So I hope and pray that the gospel would be the great consolation to everyone here. That our hope would be in Jesus and what he did for us to bring us to you. That we're more than conquerors in all these things through Christ. And that our faith in him would be strengthened even in dark hours. God, we just pray for those who suffer. That they would learn from Job. That we would learn from Job. And not become angry at you because of the bitter distresses we face, but that we would trust you as king and look to Jesus for hope. We pray it in his name. Amen. Let's stand together. Friends, we call you to trust Jesus as Lord, to turn from your sins and to believe in Jesus. The good news of the gospel is though all of us are sinners, Jesus will accept us and forgive us through repentance and faith. Jesus makes the sinner righteous. It's amazing. It's good news. So so trust Jesus now. Call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. And then the church is here to help you. A body of believers, other Christians, flawed though we are, to walk together, to encourage each other to be faithful, to pray for one another, to weep with those who weep to encourage one another, especially in times of distress. That's what the church wants to do and needs to do for one another. We call you to that. We call you to that.